Welcome to Pediatric Rowdy Bunch this morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, May 20th, 2015. We're gathered here today, um, not only for our Pediatric Grand Rounds, but for a, a very special visiting professor who's joined us in northern New England, uh, thanks to the efforts of a large coalition of, of uh, agencies and institutions led by the early uh, Childhood Mental Health Network. Thank you, Phil Eller. I haven't met you yet. Are you in the room? Thank you for helping organize that, Phil. And, and Miriam Varan, who can't join us today, uh, is also a, a, a major pusher to have Dr. Shore join us. Um, before I get to introduce Dr. Shore, I'll, I'll put in a pitch. It is National Iced Coffee Day. Why is that relevant? <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts Iced Coffee Day, that a dollar from every purchase of iced coffee today will be donated to local children's hospitals, including our own children's hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, uh, if you purchase iced coffee by the end of the day. I don't believe, I'm not sure, I don't want to diss them, but I, my visit to the Hanover store this morning makes me underconfident that that is a site for a franchisee. <laughs> West Lebanon, for sure, will have proceeds going to... Uh, to us and other proceeds will go to us in uh, University of Vermont Children's Hospital. So, but uh, we're gathered to, to have uh, Dr. Short teach us. And again, uh, we're really pleased and um, thrilled to have a national and international luminary joining us. Dr. Shore, as it shows on the slide, is a associate clinical professor in the departments of psychiatry and biobehavioral sciences at the University of California at Los Angeles, David Geffen School of Medicine. He um, received his training at the University of Rochester and his master's degree and PhD at the University of Pittsburgh in clinical psychology. He is um, um, also a part of the UCLA Center for Culture, Brain, and Development. He's the author of four seminal volumes, Affect Regulation and the Origin of Self, Affect, Affect Dysregulation and Disorders of the Self, Affect Regulation and the Repair of the Self, and the Science of the Art of psychotherapy, as well as really voluminous numeral articles and chapters. His regulation theory, grounded in developmental neuroscience and developmental psychoanalysis, focuses on the origin, psychopathogenesis, and psychotherapeutic treatment of the early forming subjective implicit self. His contributions appear across the um, literature in multiple disciplines, including developmental neuroscience, psychiatry, psychoanalysis, developmental psychology, attachment theory, trauma studies, biobehavioral uh, biology, clinical psychology, and clinical social work. His groundbreaking integration of neuroscience with attachment theory has led to his description as the world's leading authority on how our right hemisphere regulates emotion and processes one's sense of self. And with psychoanalysis as the world's leading expert in neuropsychoanalysis, he received numerous awards. One that was uh, striking to me was the American Psychological Association's Division of Psychoanalysis, a scientific award in recognition of outstanding contributions to research, theory, and practice of neuroscience and psychoanalysis, leading the American Psychoanalytic Association to describe him as a monumental figure in psychoanalytic and neuropsychoanalytic studies. So with that, Dr. Shore, who has been speaking in our region extensively and will continue to do so later this morning, I welcome you to the podium, Dr. Alan Shore. 
pleasure to be here this morning, and uh, I want to thank the department for the invitation. I also send you greetings from Los Angeles, the land of eternal sun <laughs> and no water. <laughs> so this morning, uh, what I want to do in this, in this talk is talk about this, this matter of the interpersonal origins of emotional well-being and health. And as you're going to see, uh, my work has been really uh, centered in developmental neuroscience, and I want to bring to you some of the rapid advances in the field of especially developmental neuroscience and how that has affected uh, not only clinical practice, but also our understanding of early, early emotional development. And even at the end, I'm going to end up with some thoughts about policy. In the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry in 2011, Lechman and March wrote an article, Developmental Neuroscience Comes of Age, and they described the phenomenal progress of the past three decades in the developmental neurosciences. Over the past decades, it has become abundantly clear that the dyadic relations between the child and caregivers within the first three years of life can have direct and enduring effects on the child's brain development and behavior. And what 10 years ago would have been a proposal is now really accepted as a principle of developmental neuroscience. They go on to say that the enduring impact of early maternal care and the role of epigenetic modifications of the genome during critical periods in early brain development and health is likely to be one of the most important discoveries in all of science that have major implications for our field. As you're well aware of, the breakthroughs in epigenesis uh, have indicated that the brain development is not just genetically encoded. It needs these epigenetic social experiences. These social experiences are actually uh, impacting the, the genome via methylation mechanisms, etc. And it's not, at this point in time, I'm, I'm thinking that after much of the last century, this divide between nature and nurture now, theoretically, conceptually, has been overcome and has been bridged. It's not one or the other, but the, the phrase that you see very frequently in the science literature is gene-environment interactions, mother nature and mother nurture combined to shape human nature. In pediatrics and review in 2008, I offered this interpersonal neurobiological model of attachment that is centered in right brain affect regulation. Uh, Judith and I, Judith is here, uh, wrote an article in 2008 on modern attachment theory, and we suggested that in line with Bowlby's fundamental goal of the integration of psychological and biological models of human development, Remember, Bowlby's mentors were Freud and Darwin, and he was essentially attempting to bridge those. The current clinical and experimental focus on how affective, bodily-based processes are non-consciously, interactively regulated has shifted attachment theory to a regulation theory. Over the last 20 years, I've offered this theory, again, this overarching model of development psychopathogenesis, and treatment of the right brain implicit subjective self. And throughout all of my work, I use this theoretical perspective of interpersonal neurobiology. For many years, I was the editor of the Norton series of interpersonal neurobiology. Definition being, an interpersonal neurobiology of human development enables us to understand 
that the structure and function of the mind and the brain are shaped by experiences, especially those involving social and emotional relationships, but also to understand how brains align their neural activities and social interactions, how human beings in connection with each other, that their brains will align one to the next. And this, I've drawn this out also in terms of the uh, therapist-patient relationship, but this also goes to the doctor-patient relationship, that when we are making emotional contact with other human beings, there is an alignment of brains in both. This modern attachment theory, this regulation theory, offers pragmatic implications for neuroscience. Uh, the theory generates a good deal of experimental research, but also for pediatrics, for developmental psychology, infant mental health, another field that I've been very interested in, social work, psychoanalysis, behavioral biology, psychiatry, psychotherapy, family law, and as you'll see at the end of the lecture, the culture at large. And in the following, what I want to do is to briefly discuss recent research on how optimal attachment experiences facilitate the experience-dependent maturation of the developing emotional right brain. That this right brain, that this early developing right brain, needs certain emotional experiences to foster its biological maturation, this core of the self, and thereby the interpersonal neurobiological origins of emotional well-being and health. In my latest book, The Science of the Art of Psychotherapy, I've suggested that there is now agreement that the essential task of the first year of human life is the co-creation of a secure attachment bond of emotional communication between the infant and his or her primary caregiver. The baby communicates its burgeoning positive emotional states, such as joy and excitement, interest, and also communicates its negative emotional states, such as fear, anger, depression, to the caregiver, who can then pick up these communications and ultimately can regulate these communications, these affective states. But in order to process these dyadic communications, the infant seeks proximity to the mother, and this proximity is more than physical proximity. It's proximity also body-to-body, mind-to-mind, an intersubjective proximity. And the mother must be subjectively perceived as predictable, consistent, and emotionally available. What I'm saying here is that the field of developmental psychopathology is interested not only in normal development, but abnormal development. And the problem of normal development has been a significant one for science also. What is optimal development? <clears throat> Bowlby in 1969, his first book, uh, the attachment book, uh, remarked that these mother-infant attachment communications are, quote, accompanied by the strongest of feelings and emotions and occur within a context of facial expression, posture, tone of voice. And when he's talking about the strongest of feelings and emotions, he literally is talking about love, about the communication of love. In 1991, in Bowlby's last book, he, he pointed to the future. He said that emotion is nonverbal communication of basic but very powerful attitudes in mind and potential action. And this was one of the uh, 
origins of the shift in the sciences from behavioral psychology in the 70s through cognitive psychology in the 80s and 90s, and now at this point in time into emotion per se. And he's looking forward especially at these nonverbal communications. A few years after, in my first book, Affect Regulation and the Origin of the Self, I suggested that in, our, in episodes of right brain to right brain, visual facial, auditory prosodic, and tactile gestural emotional communications, the sensitive, atto biologically attuned primary caregiver is receptive to the infant's bodily-based nonverbal attachment communications. So I want to speak now a little bit about the research on these attachment communications. Again, between the mother and the infant, first of all, right brain visual facial attachment communications. Numbers of studies of these, just a few. In 2007, Grossman in Germany showing that four-month-old infants presented with images of a female face gazing directly ahead showed enhanced gamma electrical activities lateralized to the right prefrontal areas. Japan, 2009, Nakato, using near-infrared spectroscopy, which is probably the best uh, use uh, for infants, uh, revealed five-month-old infants' right hemisphere <laughs> responds to images of adult female faces. Actually, there's more room in the brain for the processing of female faces than there are for male faces in all human brains. And there's more room in the brain actually for visual for processing in, visual information than language information. But notice that this is all lateralized to the right. And in 2002 in France, Suryo Mazoye, a pet study of a two-month-old infant looking at an image again of a woman's face showing activation of the infant's right hemisphere. There you see this two-month-old looking at that face, you see lateralization on the right side, the posterior parts here, the fusiform gyrus, etc., uh, and then moving into the amygdala and to the frontal areas. Second of all, auditory prosodic attachment communications, the prosody being the emotional tone of the human voice. This is motherese, the way that we speak to children. So here in 2010, Mento EEG study of auditory pitch processing in preterm infants, even before birth, who are now born at 30 gestational weeks, these findings suggest that the earlier structural maturation in fetal epochs seems to be paralleled by a right functional development. It's now been established that the infant can process these auditory sounds even in utero and the long-term um, beliefs that the child, that the mother's lullaby could be picked up by the fetus, there is now information that this is the case. 2009, Tel Kamaya, another NIRS of a two to six day neonates, now this is in the perinatal period, show responses to slow acoustic modulations lateralized to the right hemisphere. And Homai in 2006, article, prosodic processing in three-month-old infants is subserved by the right temporoparietal region. Here you see this is the schema of uh, right brain activation. Actually, this baby is asleep, and the mother is singing a, a lullaby. And you see, even in the sleep state, 
that the right areas, the posterior right areas now are being activated. <coughs> and then three, these tactile gestural uh, communications. Uh, in uh, Scotland, Naji studying human neonates in the first three to 96 hours of life find, again, a lateralized system for neonatal imitation. Let me just point out that the left hemisphere is not going to come into a growth spurt until about 12 to 16 months, but here you see even in the first year of life and even prenatally, uh, the right hemisphere is dominant. And they say that the early advantage of the right hemisphere Citing Sharon, uh, Sharon had written an article, The Right Hemisphere is Dominant in Human Infants in 1997 in France. My own work, the work of my colleague Colwyn Trevarthen, in the first few months of life may affect the lateralized appearance of the first imitative gestures. You're aware that the child, even in the first week, can imitate the gestures of the mother. And then Saratsky and Wohl on touch, the emotional impact of touch. The most basic and reciprocal mode of interaction is also more direct and immediate if an infant is held on the left side of the body. And the caressing is done, the soothing on the left side. We now have some indications that if the mother is attempting to cradle on the right, that this leads more towards an avoidant attachment. So the work of McGilchrist, the right hemisphere is more closely in touch with emotion and the body. Uh, the, the heart rate is more controlled by the right brain than the left brain, etc. And then work coming out of uh, Edtronics Laboratory in Boston observing left-sided regulatory gestures when the infant is stressed. And they show a greater activation of the right hemisphere during a stressful condition that is state-dependent activation of the, of the right. And the right is more involved in the social and biological functions regarding infant caregiver emotional bonding. Again, citing myself and my colleague, Dan Siegel. The mother not only receives these infants' right brain emotional communications, but then she interactively regulates them. And in fact, Attachment, we're now thinking, is the interactive regulation of emotion. The baby is sending positive or negative, and she's upregulating positive states, and she's downregulating negative states. The baby becomes securely attached to the psychobiologically attuned caregiver. Notice the caregiver is not just mentally attuned, but psychobiologically attuned. Actually, what she is reading are the rhythms of the autonomic nervous system, She's regulating the peripheral arousal in the baby even more so than the central arousal, who minimizes negative affect, fear, and soothing, and maximizes positive affect, joy states, excitement states in play. This is a shift of the theory because Bowlby was mostly talking about the downregulation of fear as being the main reason that the bond was formed. We now know it's both, it's, it's both positive and negative emotion. So it's the emotional availability of the caregiver in intimacy. The term intimacy actually should be emboldened, which seems to be the most central growth-promoting feature of the early rearing experience. Uh, the great Brit British pediatrician, psychoanalyst Winnicott, the main thing is a communication between the baby and the mother in terms of the anatomy and physiology of live bodies. So the best iconic representation that we have now of attachment is this. There's more than mental states being transferred back and forth. 
The relationship between the both of them is regulating their autonomic nervous system at this point in time. The parasympathetic uh, nervous system is being activated. The sympathetic is being down-regulated. Also regulating the endocrine system here. Um, cortisol is falling in both. Oxytocin is rising in both, or both also associated with parasympathetic functions. They're regulating each other's uh, endocrine systems uh, and uh, obviously uh, their central nervous systems. The, the next step of studies, I'm, I'm sure, will be showing that they're also co-regulating their immune systems. Again, notice the baby's on the left, because when the baby's on the left, you get more of a right brain to right brain communication uh, through the gaze and through the, uh, and through the ear. So in Germany, Aftershaft, uh, Roth, and Brown, in the journal Neuroscience, the regulatory function of the newborn-mother interaction may be an essential promoter to ensure the normal development and maintenance of synaptic connections during the establishment of functional brain circuits. In other words, what's being regulated here are more than internal homeostatic systems. This is also allowing here for the uh, optimal connection because uh, during this period of time, in the critical periods, there's massive myelination, there's massive synaptogenesis, etc. And this is occurring in the human brain growth spurt. The human brain growth spurt is the last trimester of pregnancy through the second year of life. The brain is more than doubling in size during these prenatal and postnatal periods. The synaptogenesis is now estimated to be 40,000 synapses, new synapses every second. And I've suggested here, if we're looking at this, we really have a relational model here. That the self-organization of the developing brain occurs in the context of a relationship with another self, another brain. It needs this other self, this other regulator, to optimize this neurobiological development. <clears throat> this is an example from Trevorthan's laboratory, what he calls primary intersubjectivity here. Notice the communications here between faces, voices, and gestures. The baby attracted to the mother's voice, face, and expressions and hand gestures replies playfully with affection, imitating, provoking imitations. The mother watches and listens. The mother is not doing anything. She is being with the baby. She is watching and listening, anticipating the baby's expressions intuitively. She is not logically doing this with her left hemisphere intuitively with her right, replies sympathetically and playfully with motherese speech as they take turns here. And that brain here, the baby's brain now again, um, doubling in size. So these right brain to right brain attachment experiences impact the experience-dependent maturation of this, again, the baby's developing right brain. We know that the right brain is dominant in human infants, and actually the right brain is dominant until about the third year of life. It's not until between three and four that the left hemisphere becomes dominant. You see here Ullman's laboratory uh, reporting that this strong and consistent predominance for the right hemisphere emerges postnatally, although it is there in some form prenatally, but then it starts to build up, especially across the first year, so that the right hemisphere of the infant now processes tones, voice, and gestures, etc. And this allows for a right brain to right brain communication between both. 
and also extensive studies now showing that the earlier maturation of the right is supported by both anatomical and imaging evidence. It's these kinds of studies now uh, in my most recent writings, I'm not talking about early assessments in both uh, attachment and also in autistic spectrum disorders in the first year of life, really tracking these patterns of right lateralization as being an indication of emotional development in real time and social development over the first year and into the second year. Another way of using the science, converting the science into pragmatic. Um, incidentally, I am a clinician scientist, so I'm very much interested in the clinical applications. What you're looking at here is uh, the right side of the brain, and this is the limbic system. And it's these areas that are forming in the first year. The blue uh, subcortically would be the, the amygdala, and you're looking at the right amygdala. You're well aware of uh, the complex functions of the right amygdala, which are more than just fear. They also have positive functions. The yellow being the anterior cingulate, which is also involved in emotion processing. And then the right, the orbitofrontal cortex, which I stated is the main, uh, the last evolving 10 to 12, 18 months is the control system of attachment. 2009 in Italy, fMRI study of mother-infant emotional communications offering data supporting the theory that the right hemisphere is more involved than the left hemisphere in emotional processing and thus mothering. The mother is picking up these communications in her right brain at an intuitive level. Essentially, she's tracking the autonomic nervous system, and she's repeating more or less the same rhythms of the autonomic nervous system in herself, and by this literally is recreating the emotional state that the baby is in at this point in time. So she knows in her body. She knows in her body. And this matter about the left hemisphere, there we now have some evidence, uh, looks like strong evidence, that if the mother is attempting to read this child and interact with the child with her rational left brain, the analytical, logical left brain, instead of the intuitive right brain, that this may be more associated with insecure dismissive attachments, insecure avoidant attachments. <laughs> there in... Uh, in Japan, Minagawa, Kauai, a near-infrared spectroscopy study of infant mother attachment at 12 months. Our results are in agreement with that of Shore, who addressed the importance of the right hemisphere in the attachment system, and that made my day. <laughs> this was essentially the, the mother is looking at a video of her baby smiling and laughing, and you see activation in the mother's right orbital frontal cortex. And then the baby is looking at a video of the mother smiling and laughing, and again you see uh, activation in the baby's right orbital frontal cortex. It's the work of Meany's lab in Canada, <coughs> Neuroimage 2013. In early life, the right cerebral hemisphere could be better able to process emotion. Shore, Wada, and Davis, this idea appears consistent with our findings of rightward asymmetry in limbic structures. These neural substrates functions as hubs in the right hemisphere for emotion processes and mother and child interaction. And then in Japan, Noriyuchi, activation of the mother's right hemisphere during moments of maternal love triggered by viewing video of her own infant. First time the study came out, I was tickled that biological psychiatry is, uh, is putting up here an article about mother love. 
<laughs> so these relational experiences induce these neuroplastic changes, not only in the infant's brain, but it turns out also in the mother's brain. It's a study on um, the plasticity of human maternal brain, longitudinal changes in brain anatomy during early postpartum period. And they report that between two and four weeks, when the infant is two to four weeks, to three to four months, this critical period, what you see is increased gray matter in the mother's brain, including the right insula, the right hypothalamus, the right cingulate, and the right amygdala. The structural changes were predicted by a mother's post positive perception of her baby in the first month postpartum. In other words, if she had a positive feeling about this baby in the first month, in the third month, you start seeing structural changes in her limbic system, which are now getting ready to pick up even more complex signals from the baby's limbic system. She's downloading her limbic system into the baby. Again, the mother's positive feelings for her baby may facilitate the increased levels of gray matter. Her loving feelings literally are impacting uh, brain development. Subsequent to the child's attachment to the mother in the first year, the child forms another to the father in the second. Herzog in Boston some years ago described the biorhythmicity of man with infant and women with infant affords infants to have interactive state-sharing and state-attuning experiences with two different kinds of caregivers. Usually fathers are more high arousal, uh, mothers more low arousal and soothing. I've also suggested that the father is later critically involved, especially in the second year, in male and female toddlers' aggression regulation, while in the first year the mother is more involved with what will become the child's fear regulation. There have been only a few studies on the father's brain. Braun's laboratory in Germany indicates that paternal care does affect synapse formation in the developing brain. And in 2014, a more definitive study by Abraham, father's brain is sensitive to child care experiences. It was studying parental brain response to infant stimuli using fMRI and they measured primary caregiving mothers and secondary caregiving fathers. The mean age of these infants was 11 months. That's pretty well down the line. And they describe a parenting caregiving expressed in two different brain systems. A subcortical paralimbic structures implicated in emotional processing and then also a cortical areas involved in social understanding. What they found was that the mothers showed greater activation in the emotion processing networks and the father in later developing social cognitive circuits. And again, the emotional processing circuits are highly subcortical, and of course the brain is going to develop cortically first and then, excuse me, subcortically first and then cortically. Uh, incidentally, there, there's evidence that uh, in the first year of life, uh, I said the brain doubles in size. The amount of uh, synaptic development in the subcortical areas in the first year increases by 120%. So 
So this is more than executive functions here. And in the end, these subcortical areas, I think, really will be the key to most of the psychiatric diseases, like autism, et cetera. Uh, and again, all of these are being impacted by the social environment. So this attachment is the source of these right brain functions of emotional well-being over the lifespan as we're now moving through critical periods. And the amygdala has a critical period which begins in the last trimester of pregnancy through about the second to third month. The anterior cingulate has a, has a critical period from about three months to about 10 months, and then the orbital frontal from about 10 months to about 16 months. Each of these critical periods the mother literally is offering more and more complex social-emotional information, and there are different types of information as this infant is, is evolving. And because they're setting up the wiring of the brain here, these will become uh, permanent and uh, will be activated at later points in the lifespan. And then later, the left hemisphere is going to build on top of this, but essentially, the early arousal mechanisms, the early pain mechanisms, the early autonomic mechanisms, these are all being directly impacted by the attachment relationship. And this is the neurobiological reason why the, these later functions, these later autonomic functions are so critical. And of course, uh, the dysregulation will be seen uh, in, in insecure attachments, et cetera, you know, will be seen in later forms of dysregulation. The right regulates the HPA axis. The right is dominant for the secretion of cortisol, for example, uh, and oxytocin. The right is dominant for the control of vital functions supporting survival, enabling organisms to cope with stresses and challenges. Usually we talk about the left hemisphere as being the dominant hemisphere in human beings. I've written, and others are now writing, that actually the survival functions are on the right Actually, the right is more key here to survival, uh, especially the ability to change and to adapt as environments changes and to adapt to stresses and challenges. So work also in Canada by Sullivan's Laboratory, the right hemisphere specializes in regulating stress and emotion-related processes. The highest centers of stress regulation are in the high right cortex, the left hemisphere, essentially mo uh, modulates, regulates mild to moderate stress. But in all human beings, as the stress is raised, it shifts right, and it's going now to these attachment-based right brain stress-regulating functions. These stress-regulating functions are regulating not only the arousal systems you know, deep into the brainstem, not only regulating uh, the biomines, dopamine or adrenaline, serotonin, but also are regulating the sympathetic and the parasympathetic arms of the, of the autonomic nervous system. So here you see Destiny and Shamanad. These are some functions here. Self-awareness, empathy, identification with others, and more generally, intersubjective processes are largely dependent upon right hemisphere resources, which are the first to develop. <clears throat> few more characterizations of the right. The right operates a distributed network for rapid responding to danger and other urgent problems. The left is too slow. It preferentially processes environmental challenge, stress, and pain. 
good evidence to show that pain processing is also lateralized on the right. And it manages self-protective responses such as avoidance and escape. Again, all avoidance, detachment, etc., dissociation, disconnection, escape, flight, right brain. Nature has set these survival functions up before language because they fundamentally are more critical to survival. It's the work of Hecht in experimental neurobiology. The right hemisphere has a relative advantage over the left hemisphere, mediating social intelligence. Now, emotional intelligence, as you're aware of, that's a right brain function, but now there's good evidence to show that social intelligence, defined as identifying social stimuli, meaning the faces, the voices, the gestures that come from other humans, that come from other human minds, understanding the intentions of other people, empathy, awareness of the dynamics and social relationships, and successful handling of social interactions. My colleague Russell Mears, uh, working with borderline personality disorders, which are good examples of dysfunctional right brains, has uh, put forth the argument that the right hemisphere is responsible for a background state of well-being, which would be a background state of a secure attachment, a background state of well-being. 2014, De Pisapia, Interpersonal Competence in Young Adulthood and Right Laterality in White Matter, Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience. Studying six major white matter tracts by diffusion tensor imaging scanning. And these were with, with adolescents, I think about 18 to about 22. And then giving them an interpersonal competence questionnaire. And here they define interpersonal competence as the capacity to interact and communicate with others, to share personal views, to understand the emotions and opinions of others, and to cooperate with others or resolve conflict should it occur. Notice these are something very different than the language, logical, analytical functions of the left. What they report is that higher interpersonal competencies are related to higher white matter integrity in several major tracts of the right hemisphere. This finding supports evidence in the literature that points to the fundamental role of the right hemisphere in social cognition. So emotional intelligence, social cognition. The finding may have implications for theories claiming that the right hemisphere plays a major role in modulating emotion and nonverbal communication. First, during the first interpersonal relationship that every human being experiences, namely the infant-mother relationship, then citing me again, our results support this hypothesis, another good day. <laughs> Chor also suggested that dysfunction in the development of the right hemisphere may affect infant mental health and social difficulties in later stages of development. In 2002, in the Australian New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry, I put forth an article that emotional relational environment provided by the primary caregiver shapes for better or worse the maturation of the brain systems involved in attachment functions assessed, accessed during the, across the lifespan. And that the best current description of the path of infant, infant brain development is that the brain is malleable, not resilient. This was a recorrection because there was a, a decade there in the 90s 
when developmental psychology was more or less saying that all children are resilient. This has not been the case, especially those of us working in trauma with children, abuse and neglect. The more proper term is the brain is malleable. And because it is resilient, it also has plasticity at later points in time. Although the right is dominant here, at about 18 months, the left will become dominant. And then over the course of the lifespan, it shifts back into right, left, right, left, right, left. Now, nothing as massive as the brain development early in the first year, although adolescence is a nice pop later. But, uh, but again here, there is plasticity in the system down the line. I do not mean to say that these critical periods shut and then that's, that's the end of the game. We can take advantage of these later uh, growth spurts in both of these brains because the truth of it is that the frontal lobes over the lifespan develop asynchronously. The right, the left, the right, the left, and they go in stages. And interestingly, it looks like the stages of right-left uh, frontal lobe development parallels uh, Erickson's ideas of the stages. <laughs> So on the basis of the plasticity, my other work is in psychotherapy. And in, uh, in 2014, this article, The Right Brain is Dominant in Psychotherapy because the relational aspects, as you're well aware, when it comes to psychotherapy, there's now strong evidence to show it's the relationship between the patient and the clinician, really, that is the vector of the work, much more so than insight. In the past, we thought insight was the major mechanism of change. So a few last words here about the broader cultural and political implications. I've said that in human infancy, the right brain functions are dominant and need to be allowed to fully mature throughout life. The right and not left brain is centrally involved in critical survival functions. The allocation of attention, the capacity to experience positive and negative emotions, and incidentally, the idea that positive emotions are good and negative emotions are bad is also a fallacy. The ability to, to tolerate pain and distress, even to experience shame, etc. These are part of morality, etc., part of grieving and mourning. And then, of course, you can have positive emotions in a manic state that clearly are dysfunctional. So both of, we need to be able to experience both pain and pleasure in life. But also the rights dominant for the regulation of stress, the ability to empathically and intuitively read the emotional states of other human beings, and indeed, there is now good evidence that morality is very much uh, centered on right brain functions. This uh, underlies the critical role of infant mental health to later emotional well-being and the direct connections between infant mental health and adult mental health. In the journal of Neuroscience, Nick Meyer, the large increase in total brain volume in the first year of life suggests that this is a critical period in which disruption of developmental processes as the result of innate genetic abnormalities or as a consequence of environmental insults may have long-lasting or permanent effects on brain structure and function. Although the first year of life may be a period of developmental vulnerability, it may also be a period in which therapeutic interventions would have the greatest positive effect mother-infant psychotherapy in the first year, working with, with mothers in, in prenatal stages, et cetera, pregnant mothers. So Leckman and March, going to, returning to them, a scientific consensus is emerging that the origins of adult disease are often found among developmental and biological disruptions occurring in the early years of life. 
2013 in the journal Infant, Child, and Adolescent Psychotherapy, I offered an article, Regulation Theory in the Early Assessment of Attachment and Autistic Spectrum Disorders. This was a response to Miriam Boran's work. As you know, M Miriam is here. And again, this problem of the early differential diagnosis of uh, disorganized attachments, let's say it's six months from early autism. And this brings the matter to early intervention and prevention, which I see as really the next step. Uh, notice in the journal Science Research in Developmental Biology and Physiology Supports Developmental Origins of Health and Diseases. So we're talking more than mental, physical diseases. 2007, Prince, notice the title, No Health Without Mental Health, published in The Lancet. Mental disorders increase risk for communicable and non-communicable diseases and contribute to unintentional and intentional injury. The interactions between mental disorders and other mental health conditions are widespread and complex. These mental disorders interact with other conditions, including, and then they specify, non-communicable diseases, such as medically unexplained somatic conditions, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, as well as communicable diseases such as HIV, AIDS. They go on to say we need to understand, better understand the mechanisms that underlie interactions between mental health and other health conditions. Primary health care workers need to be trained in recognition and evidence-based treatment of mental disorders. Uh, this is being written essentially to the medical disciplines. We need to promote holistic models of care, which integrate psychosocial assessments and interventions seamlessly and routinely into the management protocols for major communicable disease and diseases of reproductive, uh, reproductive diseases and childhood disorders, which talks to this matter of the relationship of pediatrics to infant mental health. So some recent uh, applications to political systems here, uh, a book that I co-edited on evolution, early experience in human development, second article on family court review. Uh, a couple of years ago, I presented uh, to a thousand family lawyers on early development, uh, lawyers having to make these Solomonian decisions of what to do with infants in the first year of life and such. And then a plenary address in the Australian Childhood Foundation Conference understanding the basis and change of recovery, early right brain regulation, and the relational origins of emotional well-being. Now this last one, which is in a policy journal, Ch uh, Children Australia, is an expansion of a talk that I gave last fall to the British Parliament. And um, uh, if, if anyone wants any of this, just email me, especially this last one. These are the broader implications of, of this work in childhood. <coughs> In 2013, there was a UNICEF report, Child Well-Being in Rich Countries. And they said it's perhaps no longer necessary to argue the case for the importance of the early years. Advances in both neuroscience and social science have repeatedly confirmed that it is at this time that genetic potential interacts in infinitely complex ways with early experience to construct the neural pathways and the connections that quickly become both the foundations and the scaffolding for all later development. It is therefore at this time that the child's well-being 
health and development are most in need of society's concerns and protection. This was a theme you may recognize this. This was in the New York Times, essentially showing uh, paid maternal leave almost everywhere. And as you remember here, all industrialized countries uh, across the world now have paid, paid maternal leave. Uh, most countries in Europe are up to 10, 12 months for the mother, three, six months for the father, etc. We are the only country that does not have this policy of paid maternal leave. Um, personally, I think this is a great shame of our country. As a result of this, uh, mothers are, and fathers are putting their infants into daycare at six weeks. Most daycare in this country has been undertrained. I've also recently worked for the uh, uh, Institute of Medicine on a, on a book about upgrading the training of early education and daycare workers, etc. But I'll also tell you that uh, in the 70s and the 80s, the amount of secure attachments in this country in very broad scales was about 75% secure attachments. In 2008, it had dropped to 55%. <laughs> in 2001, I suggest that the earliest stages of humanhood are critical because they contain within them the representations of our possible futures. They model the potential developmental extension of our individual and collective social identities. When and where shall we place our current resources so as to optimize the future of human societies? How much should we value the very beginnings of human life and tangible social program dollars? 2014, the journal Science, an editorial of focus on child development, Silver and Singer. And they speak to the role of the policy goals of the United Nations for children. And they say investing in child development is the foundation for improved health, economic, and social outcome. Not getting the early years right is linked to violent behavior, depression, higher rates of non-communicable diseases, and lower wages. And it negatively affects a nation's gross domestic product. The emphasis should be on child development, which would put the focus where it belongs, on the end beneficiary, the child, and his or her potential for development. They refer to the fundamental importance of early child development to overall sustainable development. And they conclude that recent advances in neuroscience indicate the importance of healthy brain development in the early years to human capital formation. A society only reaps the full benefits of a child's survival if that child becomes a productive individual as an adult. An increase in thriving children over the next 15 years would lay a stronger foundation for healthy, prosperous, and peaceful societies. <coughs> for me, this healthy brain development equates to an enduring effects of optimal right brain development secure attachment, and the relational origins of emotional well-being. A month ago, I, I came across an article written in the Economic Journal, titled being, What Predicts a Successful Life, a Life Course Model of Well-Being? And this was an important finding from the major longitudinal study of the UK population uh, conducted by the London School of Economics. And they conclude, the most important childhood predictor 
of adult satisfaction is the child's emotional health, followed by the child's conduct. The least powerful predictor is the child's intellectual development. I think where our, our priorities are in our particular culture. And I thank you for your attention. Because a left-handed person would be more likely to hold the no. baby on the right. So no. No. Um, when I say left hand, I'm not talking about carrying the baby. That's usually on the right with the stronger right hand. But I'm talking about the soothing and the calming. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, women will usually the, the majority of women will create will soothe on the left. Uh, will, will soothe on that side of the body. Regardless of handedness. Regardless of handedness, exactly. Men will not do that unless, until they have had a child, and then they also will. <laughs> and again, what you're looking at is, if you look at the uh, spatial aspects of that, literally, the information is going into the mother's left ear, that's going into the baby's left ear, et cetera, and the eyes are also direct, because really what you need is direct, you know, eye-to-eye -eye, uh, connections, et cetera. There are some studies, as I said, that more depression is, is associated with uh, the right-sided cradling. Yeah. Um, I was interested several slides back talking about um, the importance of primary caregivers becoming aware of um, evidence-based uh, psychotherapy interventions. Seems to me evidence-based um, often is synonymous with short-term cognitive left-brain interventions. So I was interested in that choice of words. Right. <clears throat> Uh, I'm, I, I'm giving four lectures this week, and two of them are on this problem, that uh, there is too much of an emphasis right now on left brain, uh, right, increasing you know, insight, et cetera, on left brain, and uh, too much of a heavy emphasis on cognition rather than emotion and the social, et cetera. So there's some challenge to that model at this point in time. And the truth of it is that in the more, as far as I'm concerned, in the more severe disorders, uh, all therapies must attend to emotion, period. But in the more severe disorders, there are certain limitations. I think that the left brain can reduce symptoms, some symptoms. But when it really comes to improving the self-system and, and self-esteem and, and emotional and social functions, it has to be right brain. So I think we're starting to see a shift here. And one of the major vectors for this shift has been trauma. Because trauma also is in the right, and it, uh, there are limitations that, of what you can do with the left. So uh, right now, um, the relationship really is seen much more than inside, et cetera. So you're seeing the field now beginning to shift away from just techniques into the ability to form relationships with the patient, really being the key, deeper and broader with a wider variety is much more of a factor there than learning specific techniques. And this may have they make changes in training, in training in psychotherapy, in training in psychiatry, et cetera. Hopefully your research will be evidence-based um, emphasis on different types of treatment. Right. Um, 
Yeah. It's wonderful to sort of hear about this balance. Um, I think one of the things that's also wonderful is, you know, terms like mother ease and mother love, and, and really, I think, in many respects, um, highlighting the importance, you know, of maternity leave in those first few months. Um, however, speaking as a mother, um, and probably for many mothers in the room, one of the things that I find challenging, um, and I would love to hear you speak more about this, is that puts it puts a great deal of pressure on a mother in the first three months of life. Um, and I will speak for myself in saying that I spent a, lot, a great deal of time stressing personally about if I didn't attend to my colicky baby's cry, you know, were they going to be in therapy 40 years from now? I mean, I'm being funny about it, but I think there's a lot of pressure on young mothers to sort of get this right or else. And so I was hoping you would speak to that balance of where's the margin for error? Where is sort of the, you know, the, the bell-shaped curve for normal mothering? Because while we are mothers, we are not perfect. Well, <laughs> the, uh, first of all, the fact that families are under enormous stress at this point in time especially families with children, uh, without support, because in other cultures do not have this problem. Where there is this maternal and paternal leave, some of these problems are alleviated, et cetera, here. And then there's also the problem of the daycare. But uh, in, in the end, uh, the matter is that what the child needs here is a right brain. It needs a right brain that it can pattern itself beyond, uh, onto, and it needs a right brain that can process these cues and that can be involved in these emotional communications, which also means um, that it, this also could be someone other than the mother. Um, and in fact, it also could be the father. And we have, it's not uncommon these days for the father also to be staying home, et cetera, you know, as opposed to the mother. But the key here is the right brain. The right brain is dominant for picking up nonverbal communications. And as you know, women are better at picking up nonverbal communications on the face than men are. Uh, the key is the right brain. We have some tentative evidence. We're not sure, but it looks like men do have right brains. <laughs> but I'm, but I, what, I, what I want to say, this should be more than just an individual problem. Our, this culture must also be doing something about these matters. Did you have... Yes, Tronics, 30%. Yeah, right. So on the matter of the perfect mother, the matter of the perfect mother, uh, Tronic, uh, this matter of attunements, this attunements, Tronic showed that in uh, a normal, secure dyad, the mother misattunes 70% of the time. 30% is there. And the key is the repair after the misattunement. In fact, we're now thinking that the key to psychopathology is not so much the misattunements, the amounts of misattunements, as the lack of repair. So nature has built into this the repair mechanism. There is no longer a need for this perfect mothering, so to speak. But uh, it'd be nice to hear more about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I want to give um, Phil Cole and the leader of our child advocacy infection program not the last word. Uh, for those who have the opportunity to continue this discussion on practical application, advocacy, and policy implications, in about 20 minutes, Dr. Shaw will continue to be in this room with our friends. Probably, I think it's the end of mental health network. I call it the early childhood. It's the early childhood.
I'm sorry, I did get it right. But um, so that this will be to be continued for those who, who are really well, thank you for that wonderful tour of the right brain. Um, I, because the people in this corner of the room are a lot of people who work with kids who have been neglected very early in life and sometimes have had brain injury, I was just hoping you might give us a word of hope about the malleable brain and the possibility of repair when children have missed those critical periods and or had that brain injured. Yeah. You know, I, I said before also that after this critical period, there are, it continues to be periods of plasticity at later points in time. Uh, so there is malleability in it, and this goes for neurological as well as uh, psychological impairments on the connectivity of the right brain. Um, that, that, that being the case, uh, psycho, the psychotherapeutic models are, are based on this early brain developmental model, so essentially what it would say is that using left brain techniques with right brain problems is not going to make it, which means that just intellectual understanding and teaching techniques is not going to do a teaching skills. It has to be activated by the right brain. It has to be about these emotion processing situations. And that goes for right lateralized neurological damage as well as it goes for the various psychiatric disorders. So there is plasticity, but our treatment models are changing more to matching the right brain with the kinds of social and emotional information it needs to expand it. Part of the reason I think that we felt that there was real limitations because we were coming at it from the wrong, we were coming at it essentially using left hemispheric techniques, you know, into the right. Thank you. Yes, and that was just, thank you for that. Thank you, and those who can join us are continuing later on.